don't have enough stuff, so I brought more. And I don't know that I'm going to bring this back up. So, well, I brought it back. I'm going to put that back there. Okay. Too many things in my hands. Let's turn to, again to the book of Haggai. And a couple of thoughts from my devotional readings this week, things that I just jotted down. Um, I want you to think of as we come to this passage, um, something that just came to my mind that I wrote down. God has put us here so that we can find Him. He pursues us then, and we find Him in Jesus. And then from uh, an author or a pastor from the early 1800s, only lived to be 29 years old, wisdom can come in all ages and shapes and sizes, named Robert Murray McShane. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled with a sense of excellence of Christ. And as we come to a passage like this where we see God at work in history, we find much clarity when we look at it through the lens of Jesus. Because, again, that puzzle piece that I mentioned earlier, you know, this is just a chunk of plywood. It's probably worth about $80 today. Uh, but it's got some purple paint on it that somebody would probably be offended by. It's got my name on the back of it. You know, these things. There, but there's no real practical use to this except as a reminder of things that God has done in my life in the past. And I've got all kinds of stuff like that in my office and around our house. I've got pictures of family and, and friends that you, you remember from times past and uh, hopefully remember fondly. But today is different. And that's the kind of place that they were in the book of Haggai. Remember that they... Had the, the children of Judah had been exiled to Babylon. Very few of them had been left in Judea in, uh, in the area of Jerusalem. But then they came back and they started rebuilding the temple. They laid all the foundation for it. Then they got distracted by their own issues. And so they started building their own homes and taking care of the, the, immediate, the immediacy of their personal needs. And some things happened along the way. First of all, they forgot about why they came back. They came back to restore true worship in the temple. But they forgot about that. And then along the way, God brought interesting reminders of how He would be at work in their hearts and their lives. And so for the last couple of weeks, we see this picture of just a few months in 520 B.C. And I was looking at... uh, one of the translations that's pretty popular today, it actually, if, if you look at it, it's a New Living Translation. It's not my favorite translation. We can go into that later. But it actually makes it to be like August 29th of 520 B.C. Okay. N- but no. <laughs> it was before they figured out this Julian calendar that we were on. And, but, you know, we see that in, in very p- pointed date in history um, in that second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day, that's what we see in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we, or at the end of chapter 1, it says, on the 24th day of that month, they had gotten back to work. It only took three, month, three weeks for them to get their stuff together. And we, this is our third Sunday, so we should have it together by now, guys. 
Um, I'm glad I get a little chuckle out of that. Anyway, uh, I'm in in year 45 and still don't have anything together yet. Uh, In the seventh month then, it says, in uh, the next month, a month later, in in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, God brings another message from Haggai to the people of Judah. And then, finally, in three weeks after that, basically what we would term in our modern calendar the week of Christmas in the middle of the winter, God has two final messages for, uh, from Haggai for the people of Judah. One of them to the people as a whole, and then uh, another to the governors, to the magistrates, to the, to the people of the land. And what we find all along the way is that God is calling the people back to His purpose. And what we find is that ultimately His purpose leads to Jesus. So to understand the context of history and how the Bible comes together, you're going to have a lot of confusion until you come and realize what God has done and is still doing through Jesus. And we'll come to that, and and it's kind of a simple conclusion to all of what we have found here in this book. But God has brought us the cure to a whole lot of problems as we look at what His Word says in this short book in the Old Testament. A couple of pages before the start of the New Testament, we are in uh, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. Let's go ahead and stand and read those together. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, but there were ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, but there were twenty. I struck you, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders will go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, uh, thank you for choosing your people. And may we find our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wouldn't be seated. 
So we have two messages here. And they're different. And they happened on the same day from the same guy to two separate audiences. Actually, well, probably Zerubbabel and his, his friends were uh, privy to the first message. But the second message was only to the leaders. But it was a promise of God's faithfulness. And it, it, this strikes me today, especially where we live in the 21st century, of how we, how we interpret Scripture and how we look at how God is at work. Because I think we really want to make this picture of God as one of Mr. Nice Guy. Or completely the opposite. God's going to zap us. And what we really find here is a righteous judge who is gracious to those who he is faithful. And he's gracious really to the whole world in that he still does provide all the needs. Verse 10 and verse 20 show us that this happens on the same day from the same guy. There's speculation on who Haggai was, whether he was a priest himself, or, but we don't really have that, that picture. What we do see is that Haggai valued pure worship. This was a, a, a prophet that listened to the word of the Lord and wanted to be faithful to what God had in store for them. So he says, here, the word of the Lord comes through this. This is a summary statement. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. All right? Go back to the law. Find out what it says, and this is why you need to think about it. He asks a couple of questions here that talk about holiness. And that is not a topic that our, our lives emulate usually, but it's also not something we like to talk about. Because holiness is something where we, we realize that we are then personally responsible for something. See, we want to make uh, God, okay, God, Jesus loves us, Jesus fixes everything, that, you know, and now he's fixed me, so now I, God and I are on the same page. Well, yes, but there's a but there. It's that he calls those who then are chosen by him to live a certain way. And there are a couple of thoughts along the way that we, we need to be mindful of. First of all, holiness or being, uh, behaving as God does or living the way he wants us to, holiness is never accidental. It's not something that just happens. As a matter of fact, you can think about that in, in your own family. If you want to see something happen, if you want to reach a goal, you have to be disciplined about it. It's not one of those things that just accidentally happens. We've talked about some of those things in our family that, you know, we li- like to do certain things and we've got to make certain decisions and be disciplined about it or else it won't happen. You have to make choices one way or another or be, you're sacrificing one thing to get a different thing. Because you have this particular goal, and it doesn't have to be any big thing in the, in the context of life on earth. But in the concept of, context of our worship, it's everything. We, we really don't like to give up our preferences. We don't like to get off our duffs and get to work when it comes down to these things. We really need to, to, to focus our lives and, and see if we want a different result, then we need to look at what God desires. And what is the thing that God desires the most from us? It is holiness. 
And the picture that we see here is that holiness is not something that can happen accidentally. And as a matter of fact, it can, it can get tripped up really quickly. Look at verse 12. It says, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest's answer simply, no, it does not. How does something become holy? It is consecrated. It is set aside for God's purposes. They had different rituals that they would practice in order to see this particular offering be holy. And it was prayer, it was prayed over, it was cleansed, it was set, uh, set apart for that purpose. And it, it isn't just that whatever you bring to God or to the, to the, the altar is holy. It has to be for the purpose of worship. It has to be realizing that we're laying down something that we love something that is valuable to us for the glory of the Lord. And so just by saying, I'm bringing this to God, doesn't make it something that He desires. We need to set our minds on giving to the glory of the Lord. And ultimately, it's not as much to do with the substance of the offering as with the purity of the one who gives. And now, let's look at the next verse, because that clarifies that a little bit for us. Verse 13, then Haggai says, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Things don't get clean accidentally. Right? You go into a place that's been neglected, what do you find? You find dirt and filth and mold and mildew and blight. Oh, that's, a, that's a fun word right there that we come back to later. You see that the only way something gets cleaned is that somebody has made a decision that it needs to happen. Now, sometimes in the world you see that God has cleansed a place, and God's cleansing is a little different than what we're talking about here. God's cleansing can be a, a picture of, you know, a fire on land. I mean... I've got friends in Central Texas that dealt with fire in their, in their own community this week. And they see the effect, ultimately, is one of destruction. But what happens following a fire, which many of us have seen that, uh, obviously living in Colorado, you see wildfires all of a sudden. What happens in the aftermath of a fire? Life will spring, and it's clean, and it's pure. But fire is never fun. It's very destructive, it's very painful, but it brings a cleansing unlike anything else. Here, it's the same kind of thing. Nothing becomes clean by accident. However, it doesn't take much at all for something to be destroyed. Anybody who's had children and you clean the bedroom, and you go in the next day. doesn't take much. But that's not even what I'm talking about here. What they're speaking of here, ultimately, is, is an unclean offering. 
And, and I think about the image of a, of a leper, right, in the New Testament. And we saw that as we were watching The Chosen in the last couple of weeks in one of those episodes that the, the leper comes. You know, what did they have to yell when they were saying, I am unclean. Why? Because that virus, that disease was so contagious that it didn't take but a moment in the presence of that person to catch it. And I think that that is honestly something that we've dealt with in our world over the last couple of years. Did you know that today was the beginning of the lockdowns two years ago or whatever they were? I don't even know what to call them. That 10 weeks we didn't come into the building for church. You know, we see that we, we, we saw a culture, and even still now, that lived in fear. Unclean, unclean. It doesn't take much for a virus to spread. It takes a lot to get rid of it, right? And that's the same kind of picture we see here. You have to be intentional about walking with the Lord, and it's a personal decision. I have to make the decisions in my life about how my life reflects the Lord. I have to say, I'm going to eliminate this, this, and this, and this, and this. I'm going to have good disciplines, spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible. I'm going to look at my life and examine my life, see where there's sin, and try, try to get rid of it, see how I treat people and try to treat them better, love one another as Christ has loved us. All of those things go into our lives, but ultimately, we can't do it sufficiently. We cannot. And that was the whole picture of the sacrificial system is that they knew their inadequacies. That's why they kept coming back to this point of sacrifice. And God recognized their inadequacies and their disobedience when He allowed the city to be destroyed and the temple to be destroyed. And now God is calling them back to this worship because He has a plan. We're going to get to that plan here in a moment. But along the way, he reminds the priests, the ones who are going to bring the offerings before the Lord, that it doesn't take much to turn your offering into trash. It doesn't take much to bring destruction on what is beautiful. And just like one breath of a virus can invade a body, all it takes is one sin sustain our lives and bring death. The wage of sin is death. And so when we start comparing sins, that's not what this is all about. God doesn't classify one sin to another. You get it to Romans, you see that the wage of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life. You cannot earn your salvation. We make our offerings by faith that God would, would, would bless them. And what God has called the people to here is to return to this place of faith. They've tried to make it all about what they can do and making their own lives better. And God has said that is not enough. Just one, un, one touch to an unclean offering will make it unclean. Verse 14, then Haggai answered and says, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. 
Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, but there were ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, and there were twenty. The picture we find here is that because of their disobedience, they were facing a famine. They had half as much of what they needed. You see this picture of God removing his hand of blessing upon them. And in that act, I don't, in what we've, we saw 70 years earlier that led to this, you saw the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You both see the active and the passive hand of God in judgment. God lifts his protection, and the active judgment comes from the nations upon the people. And here now, God is reminding them what got them where they are. It's that kind of behavior. He lifts his blessings, so now they have half or even less as much than what they need. 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blights and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. God has every right to discipline us. Don't like that. Nobody really likes that. But he is God and we are not. We are called to radical obedience to him. What is the solution? It's found in verse 17 in the negative. It says, I struck you with these things and you did not turn to me. By logical conclusion, how might we find God's blessing to return to him? Consider from this day onward. See, this is a moment of grace. This is what God has called them to in this place and in this time. He says, from this day onward. I can't do anything about what happened yesterday. Neither can you. It happened. It's in the past. We might remember it. We might not. Bless us if we can't. But we look back at our own lives and our own behavior and and we see, God, I can't change what was about yesterday, but I can do what you've called me to do through your prophet John and ultimately through Jesus when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repenting? It's turning away from the behavior that does not honor God. It's turning from our sins. And again, we don't like that. We want God to love us through all of that. But the, the, the call of God upon our lives because of the sacrifice that we find in Jesus, is one of repentance. We live now in a way that blesses Him. And that's not an easy thing to wrap our minds around. We don't repent to be saved. We repent because we are saved. We want to live our lives now as we looked back at Joshua last week when he looks at this passage and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Looking back on everything that we've been through, now this day forward, I will bless him. That's the call that, that, that is given here to the children of Judah. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, 
I will bless you. That, my friends, is how I titled this message, is the promise of healing. We've been through a lot of things in our lives and our hearts, and all of them exist for the purpose of returning to the Lord. He disciplines us spiritually. He even disciplines us physically, I believe, to remind us of our dependence upon Him. And how does He fulfill it? Again, we have to look at the lens of, of, through the lens of Jesus at the Scriptures. Seventy years earlier, God removes the, the throne from Jerusalem. But he does not neglect his promise. If you go and read the end of Jeremiah, if you go read the books of the kings and, and, and the chronicles, you see that, that God takes the throne from Judah and lays judgment upon the people through Nebuchadnezzar. But he hasn't forgotten his promise. And he hasn't forgotten his people. Because what we find is this character named Zerubbabel. I'm so sad. I'm like, I, might, I might say it next time I preach just to say it. It's just a fun name to say. But here, we, up, up until this morning's messages, we also hear about the high priest, right? Je Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, another no name that's fun to say. That name Joshua appears over and over and over in the Bible, and it's ultimately the name that's transliterated to Yeshua and is Jesus. What does it mean? It means the Lord saves. That promise appears over and over and over. And it's significant here in Haggai that it's the name of the priest. It's the one that will bring that offering of God's atonement for the people. But he's not mentioned in this passage at the close. God speaks to Zerubbabel as the leader of the people. Now, he's not the king, but he is the one that has been placed in authority over the people as a whole, as the governor. The word of the Lord came a second time, the same day to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was the grandson of, of Jeconiah, who was renamed, i got to get, get the, the right name in here, hold on, go to the end of, oh, I didn't write this down, things I'm going to regret. Got to get all the names here. Um, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. All these names that we find at the end of Second Chronicles, at the end of Second Kings, and we see the fall of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar and then taken away. Zerubbabel is his grandson. You go into the New Testament, and let's go there really quickly. I did mark those. Matthew chapter 1. And you'll just see this one verse here. Verse 12 and verse 13. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father, father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim of Azar. You keep on checking down, checking down. Verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Luke chapter 3. I think I put it there. Yeah, verse 27. In the midst of the genealogy that Luke offers us, Luke, Matthew starts from the beginning and gets to Jesus. Luke starts from Jesus and goes to the beginning. It also comes from a little bit different perspective. Jesus was fully from the line of Judah. This is what we figure here. The son of Joannan, the verse, verse 27, the son of Rasha. The son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. Okay, you see that name show up in both of those things. So what does this mean when we come back to Haggai? Zerubbabel was the signet that God placed. What is the signet? It's the ring. It's the stamp of authority of the, of, of the governments in, in the ancient times of the kings. God is placing him as that promise, as that puzzle piece, how we make all that come together. God is faithful, and it's shown and proven to us through our Savior. And God brings the people back to this place of worship because He desires to bring His fulfillment. It comes with discipline. They've been exiled for 70 years. That's a long time. And it's possible that Haggai had lived long enough that he saw both the old and the building of the new temple, the start of the new temple. And it took him a long time to rebuild that temple. But it's a reminder that God has not forgotten them. God has not forgotten his promise. And Zerubbabel himself is this sign of God's faithfulness that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. God always promised he would bring the people back to their land. And ultimately, that's what we'll see in his return. We see a restoration of the new Jerusalem. How will that all play out in history? Well, you're as good at predicting it as I am. I don't know about Magog and Russia and Ukraine. A lot of people trying to throw all those things together. It could be. But I, I, don't, I don't have that crystal ball. I can't predict those things. God has given us... His word to remind us to be ready for that moment. And how has he done it? He's offered it through the perfect high priest, the perfect prophet, and the perfect king. That is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of these. And what we find here is God calls his people back to their location of worship in Jerusalem, that he is continuing his promise. And we can be encouraged today that when we trust in the Lord, no matter the, the problems and the trials and the circumstances by which we're discouraged and which we fear, He is faithful. None of us have been through what the people of Judah went through that previous 70 years. Or what the children of Israel went through wandering through the wilderness. And it took years and years upon decades upon centuries for all of these things to be fulfilled. And so we decide that we want to figure it out today in this moment right now. But we're not God. 
but we trust him. And I call, call it, it by, by his word here, calling my life and our lives to be reminded of his faithfulness to his people. Why do we have the Old Testament? So that we see how God's at work. Because the world hasn't changed that much in 2,500 years since this was written. Am I right? We are all still unclean in ourselves. We all still need to trust the priest to make that sacrifice for us, that he did make that sacrifice, and that great high priest is Jesus. And he's made it possible for us today now to continue in that trust until his return. You get into the New Testament, we find his, his goodness and His graciousness through all those things, and we're reminded as we come into the Easter season that it was at an incredible price. But we're worth it, or else He wouldn't have done it. God loves you. He does have a great plan for your life. And that plan's Jesus, and it always has been. It's worth it. Do you know the author of history, personally. You can be friends with him. That's pretty cool. This author of history that brings hope to a people that have been exiled offers that same hope to you today in salvation. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for evidence of that on a small scale in each one of our lives. But Lord, in history, we thank you for your faithfulness. I pray, God, that you, um, you continue to draw us to you, that we would, we would be encouraged in your word to live a life worthy of what you have done for us, that you've paid the price for our sins. None of us in ourselves are perfect, but you make us perfect in your sacrifice. I pray for the one who might need to make a decision of obedience to you, to trust you today as Savior, to, uh, to walk in your will and serving you and your body. Help us to be fully trusting of you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together. The altar is open if you desire to pray. You have a decision to make for him. Let's trust in him.